climate change is going to be the biggest problem in terms of global health. It becomes a moment for social change and it becomes a moment where we all as a group can get together and think about how do we want the world to be, you know, coming out of this, what is the better place we can get to. The recent history of the world is a world of crisis. Black mothers deserve attention and they deserve to be center stage. That gives me hope. If uh, the communities, the disciplines, the populations come together, we can achieve anything. Welcome to Aftershocks, our podcast for the 2023 edition of The Scholar. Welcome back to Aftershocks, our podcast for the 2023 edition of The Scholar magazine. I'm Matt Hoish. I'm the assistant editor for this year's magazine. I am also a Gates Scholar pursuing an MPhil in the Geography Department. And for this episode, we are joined by Carmen Lacambra. She is a 2005 Gates Scholar who did a PhD also in the Geography Department and is the co-founder of the consultancy Grupo La Era. Carmen, we're so excited to talk with you. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for having me here. It's really nice chatting with you, and I really love to speak with the youth. I'm going to start off with a bit of a big question here, Carmen. Um, But the theme for this year's Scholar magazine is Aftershocks, Navigating a World of Crisis. And the crisis that you're navigating with the work with your consultancy, really, is that of our relationship to the environment and, and really to our ability to live sustainably on this planet. And so I'm just going to throw the big question at you, and I'm curious for your thoughts. Um, How do you think it's going in terms of navigating that crisis? The recent history of the world is a world of crisis. Maybe certain countries and certain populations of the world have been lucky not to leave those crises, but I believe that over the past 200 years, we have not been crisis-free in many places of the world. Now, the current environmental crisis is a result, or I think it's a result in part of a process in which in the past 200 years, even more, we have been wanted to be efficient at all costs, efficient, provided goods and services. And, and sometimes those goods and services are also to reduce poverty or to take technology to places that have no technology. So I I wouldn't just blame it over consumption. It's just we have been driven by wanting to be efficient, wanting to feed people across the world, wanting to reach to many places. We want efficient and punctual solutions without really considering the toll on the planet. So maybe it was always like that, but current technology has degraded the world faster. And... um, I think we as humans lack empathy with the planet. We lack empathy with other species. We lack empathy with ourselves and definitely with future generations because sustainability is not only about us and the now, but it's also that natural resources are available for other species and for future generations. On the positive side, I think Never before we had had so many people thinking about it. So we are really thinking about how to improve our relationship with the planet and how to reduce that footprint. But we need to be patient. At the same time, we have never been 
so connected. We had never had so many people accessing information and education, and we had never been so aware of our role in the great nature and how it affects us. So it's, I think we, we need to be patient. Mm. When you laid it out so poignantly, where it's this balance of patience, but also urgency, and that makes it such a, a complicated issue to address because it's so big and it takes time. But also, I feel like every day we have more and more news alerts that we don't really have the time that we want. Can, can you lay out a bit, Carmen, the work that your consultancy does in trying to address some of these problems? What are the approaches that you all take in trying to make a dent in these big issues? That is a very interesting question because every problem, although it's similar, is very different. Context is crucial. I cannot think of these problems as recipe or as a textbook that as a guideline that I have to follow. I think we need to try to understand what communities want mm. and what they what they need as well. So it's it's always a dialogue and there are a lot of stakeholders involved in that dialogue. Sometimes it gets so big that the center of attention moves away from the community to other topics. And then you have to really try to bring it back to, okay, we, we are here. What is the issue here? And and for a long time, we've heard the think global, act local. So yeah, you need to be aware of what is happening at the global level, but the solutions are local. Hmm. And uh, this was something I learned very early in my career when we were working on a national project in Colombia and sea level rise. And uh, we got global experts coming to help us to understand how sea level was going to affect certain areas of Colombia. And uh, for them, it was very difficult to understand that we didn't have the basic information they had in the Netherlands, for example. And it's just because the development process was completely different. So whereas the Netherlands have more or less taken over the sea and they mastered the coastal zones, in Latin America, because of the, the history we have, most of the development is in the Andes. So you don't have or you didn't have as much information in coastal zones. However, you, we did have really good information in certain areas. So tr try to use that information to understand the processes was, was the way we dealt with things instead of using what they were telling us to use. In my personal studies, I'm a, a master's student in the geography department. And one of the striking things that, that I've come across this year in my readings is all of the really powerful research around biodiversity conservation and the importance, if you want those projects to be successful, you really can't just focus on blunt metrics like number of trees planted or, or number of species around, but also taking into consideration local socioeconomic factors is a really critical element of any effort at conservation and it's just it was just so interesting to me to think about how it's not even just a nod to to doing what's right to thinking about local socioeconomic and cultural conditions when it comes to conservation but the data also just shows it, it just makes for more effective projects all around um how do you think about those kind of metrics in in your work the way that conservation and sustainability it's it's just impossible to to take it away from local um, socioeconomic and cultural success. I cannot argue with what you're saying because uh, you are so right. And 
I think what I was saying before, part of the issue of we wanting to be more efficient is that we also took that framework to conservation. So we want indicators, we want to measure success. And, and obviously we need it because we need to know how the investment in restoring and protecting and in conserving, how is it doing? No? How, how we make sure that we are placing the money where it is and not in the wrong actions. But it is very difficult sometimes because me, you can count the number of birds and we've all know that birds are a really good indicator of ecosystems. You can also do inventories of flora and fauna. I think they're really cool things to do. At the same time, it's very difficult not to measure. It's very expensive to monitor. Mm. No, and, and a lot of the projects do not have a budget on monitoring what is happening. A lot of the reforestation projects, the indicator is the number of plants you have planted. And, and when you speak with people at the local level, they say, yeah, five years ago, we had money, we planted, but nobody is giving us money to keep the trees between the age of seven and 11. That is when you most pro they are most probably at risk. Mm. So you have money for the seedlings and the greenhouses, but you do not have money, not even think about monitoring, but to ensure that the investment that you did five, seven years ago doesn't get ruined. So I think when I said before that we don't consider the toll in the planet, it's very cheap to develop at the expenses of a planet of natural resources. But we, we are not willing to give back. We're not willing to invest a little bit more on the natural resources and restoring it. It's not just we don't care about the footprint. I think we also do not care about how to restore it and ensure that we are restoring it well. There's so many people working on this. But at the same time, you see that we all compete for resources because there are not enough resources. Mm. And getting a bit specific, Carmen, can you talk particularly about the work that you all at Grupo Laera do? Funding partners of Grupo Laera is three people, which are my brothers and me. My brothers came from the private sector and I'm a biologist. It makes sense for us to work on what each one of us had more or less specialized, but, but we work with all kinds of stakeholders. One of our business lines specializes in small businesses and the finances of small businesses. I work on the, let's say, global challenges and the other line works on customer experience. When we started working together, particularly with the line that works on SMEs, we realized that a lot of the international projects wanting to empower local communities to reduce the pressures in the natural environment. So working with fishermen, working with the small households, working with the tourism sector. A lot of the international money was going into how do we empower these communities to ensure that they don't degrade the environment anymore, but also they have decent livelihoods. We as biologists, we can provide really good solutions, but you need a financial mentality to really speak with these people because we're speaking about their livelihoods. And this is when the lines really help each other. Our business lines really help each other because me, Carmen La Cambra, can have really a great solution, but it's a solution that is not financially viable for a coffee producer, for example. It's really good for the birds and the soil 
and the biodiversity, but not for the coffee producer that is whose livelihood and whose family's livelihood depend on it. So Juan, Juan's knowledge becomes really refreshing because he understands the needs, the financial needs of the farmers or of the tourism sector, and he questions our solution. It's like, really, okay, that sounds really good, but show me the numbers, show me how this works. So that's how we, over the past 10 years, it, we, we work together. We have listened to each other, so I take them to places that maybe they've never thought they would go. And uh, they, I learn from them on how to speak to the private sector. So when you work with people that are outside this sector, it's, it's really good because they, I learned to listen. I imagine a lot of our listeners are really interested in the kind of work that you do and hopefully doing it themselves in terms of translating a lot of the theoretical ideas that are buzzing around Cambridge and the big things you read about, but then translating those ideas to impact people's lives on the ground and what you're saying in terms of the frictions that can emerge from doing that and trying to, to work with a local business person who wants to maintain a successful business and also be a better steward of the environment, for instance. Um, and you hinted at some of the lessons you've learned, but I'm wondering if you can Expand on that. I mean, what are some of the things that maybe you didn't realize when you were an idealistic PhD student at Cambridge thinking in the classroom? I mean, you know, now you've you've been doing this work with your consultancy with your brothers for a while. What are some of the lessons that you've learned about what it takes to move from the theoretical Ivy Towers of Cambridge to the material world of making things happen on the ground? Wow. <laughs> that... The, lots of lessons, to be honest, and I think being humble is one of the lessons. Uh, being humble in general, it doesn't matter who you speak with, you always learn from other people, particularly of those that have opposing views to yours. Because if you always speak with the people that think the same way than you, you are only feeding back to yourself, oh, you're so good, you, you, you're clearly on the right path. But when you listen to people that think different of you, you learn because you learn why they think like that. And, and you start questioning yourself, which is really good. But at the same time, you try to find ways of, okay, if I didn't translate this in the way I wanted, how, how can I deliver the message and and make things happen and actually most of the time i think you just should throw your ego away but sometimes i have had to tell other people this is the solution could you please give the message because i know i know the local situation and the voice of a woman might not be the one that they are willing to hear so another person delivers the message. It doesn't matter. They, what we are there is to help, to make sure things happen. It's not about me. It's about the community you're working with. So I think that is one thing that is, has proven really important for me is I'm there for them. or We are there for them. We are not there for us. Another thing that I believe has been really 
important for me, it was to learn that communities are tired of being research on. And in the research, sometimes when you do focus groups or we just speak with communities, communities will tell you, we have had so many people, so many countries coming here, and 20 years later, we are even poorer than before. So we have had the Americans, we have had the British, we had had the Spanish, the Brazilian coming here, and this is a new research. We're speaking to you, and uh, we're still here, we're still poor. So it makes you really think about, yes, research is super important, but we, what do we do with it? Is the indicator, is it is a scientific paper? How, how do we communicate our results and are our results useful for them? So it's a bit philosophical, but, it, but it's, it's really at the core of what we do. We're trying to bring sustainable development, but at the same time, uh, it's that balance between the urgency, the understanding and what is really important. Hmm. Well, can you talk a bit, Carmen, about some of the approaches you take then to implement, I mean, some of these lessons you're talking about in terms of what good does research do for a community sometimes and really trying to think not only about research as knowledge production, but also as, as a way to make life better for these people on the ground. What does ethical research look like from your point of view nowadays? What are some of the things that you do to ensure that your research actually makes life better for the people you're, you're working with with this research? So the one thing we we try to do in our research projects, particularly when we are multidisciplinary, but at the same time from different parts of the world going to a place, is to ensure that people understand that actually to treat these communities as, the, as if they were your parents. Hmm. So one of the things that I often tell people is that, would you like your mother to live through this? If you if you have, if, if you say yes, then maybe we're doing a good job. But if it's a no, why would you like somebody else's mother to live through this? So, and it's in a way of saying, think about what you would do in your household or in your, the place where you live before you go to another place and suggest things or do things that you wouldn't do back home. I, I love science and I love research. And actually I. For me, questioning things is super important, and I think basic science should always exist. But one thing is to research, and another thing is to go and look at people and then take conclusions and don't give anything back to them. Now, it's very difficult to really give back to them because what do you give back? That is the, the difficult part. Like everyone. I, I have never met a researcher that is a bad person. I mean, you, you have crazy people, but in general, we're all good, no? In humans, we are all good. It's not that people go to other places and they are bad. We're just not aware or we are not considerate with the people we are researching on. Absolutely. So, so it's very difficult to say, what do I give back? So, so we had this really interesting workshop and that each focus group was led by a different researcher and they had a group of fishermen and fisherwomen with them. And uh, after the, the work, because some of them had traveled six hours to come and sit with us and chat with us. So we did a barbecue. 
and and we notice really at the end, which is really I it's it, it's bad that seventy of them were men. They all ate the food really like it was they were happy. The ten women that were there, they did not eat the food. They packed the food and they take it home. So it's one of those things that you realize this is a textbook thing. This is they tell you be aware of the local context. Make sure you and and we made that mistake. And it was not just uh, me. It was all of us that we work in sustainable development, and we didn't really take notice that until until the end. I think there are a lot of things that you don't realize until you make the mistakes. I guess. Hmm. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about humility and 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 really kind of like you know taking yourself down a few steps because i feel like this is also one of those things where the only way you learn these things is is to be out in the world and do these things these aren't things that you can get through theory and like you say each community really is its own thing so there's not like a standardized lesson to have in your head you have to go into these communities and and exchange knowledge exchange information learn from one another and and it's kind of that longitudinal learning over time that allows kind of the really productive relationships to emerge it sounds like exactly and it also is part of what you i was telling you that with grupo la era okay yes uh, we work with so many people and because we're a small consultancy we support each team supports each other so i've told you about juan that he works with smes but vicente works with customer services and uh, i always have him in the back of my mind when he said you have to listen like customer experience is really important and you are working with these communities. They are your clients. You have to listen to them. So it's one of those things that uh, working together, you, you start learning things from different sectors that if I had stay in just one place, I guess I, I wouldn't have had that exposure from the different disciplines. Pulling this also to, to again, a, a specific case, um, a few years ago, I came across this in my research for, for you, and, and this just really struck me. Um, you, you collaborated with um, the universities of Cambridge and York and Southampton to, to put together a film, uh, Salobre, and it was highlighting the voices of one of the communities you were working with around La Cienega Grande de Santa Marta on uh, Colombia's Caribbean coast. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about that video, that community, and then really just the logic behind putting together this piece of artwork around the work that you were doing with that community. So that is a beautiful piece of work. Yeah. I, and I thank you and I'm glad you like it. And I guess all the credits of Salobre really had to go back to Piran White. That was the director of the project at that point, and he he was east from the University of York, and Fernando Ayon, that is a Colombian movie director. So after the workshop I was telling you, we all were very humbled about the reaction of the community, and uh, we wanted to give something back. But it, it's true, like in a research project what can you give back so we thought to give a voice to this community and um, Piran said let's do a video so we we didn't wanted to do a, a video in which you had a scientist speaking about 
the Cienaga. We wanted that they spoke about their home, but also we wanted them to see their home because the video was for them. And they live in, inside La Cienaga, but they haven't seen La Cienaga from above. And parallel to the video, we also organized, helped to organize a mangrove festival. So the mangrove festival is organized by the protected area that is in that zone. And it was a, if one day, and it's a day that is for the mangroves. And we had really, really cool activities. I mean, the amount of interesting things that came out from the community. We had a science corner. We had a history corner. We had a, I forgot the word in English, but they need to use recycled materials to dress up as whatever they wanted. Oh. So we had a caiman made of Sprite bottles, but we had as well the a football because football is very, very important for us. So it, it was a beautiful day. And at the end of the day, we show the video, an extended version of the video because we wanted them to see each other. So at the same time, I mean, for doing that video was very hard work. And we had people from the team, both in Rory from Cambridge and Carlos in based in Santa Marta and the team that produced the video, they were a whole week in the lagoon. And it's not a very, um, I, I won't say it's hostile because I love that area, but I'm a biologist. So for people that are not into that might be a very, a bit of a hostile environment. It was a lot of hard work. We, they produce a lot of material and, um, like when you see the guy Don Gregorio singing, it was an impromptu. It was spontaneous. He, as part of the interview, he said, I want to make a song for this. And the song that starts and ends the video, it's a song that was composed and sung very spontaneous. So I think it's a result of what happens when artists and scientists work together. So the movie has been shown in some festivals. I know my colleagues in universities uh, show it for class. I presented it in the climate change COP in Madrid in COP25. And because it has subtitles, we can reach to more people. I feel like one of the biggest takeaways that I'm, I'm you know, meditating on from this conversation is interdisciplinarity, I feel like is this buzzword kind of buzzing around everywhere nowadays. Um, and sometimes, you know, I kind of hear it and feel like someone's just checking a box and I, I roll my eyes a bit. And I think that one thing that you're really underscoring with a lot of the the stories you're telling, Carmen, about your work trying to really make a difference in, in the world with your partners um, is that, you know, it's not about doing science alone or art alone or social sciences research alone or anything like that. It's really like trying to take this holistic approach not because you're trying to, to tick a box, but it really, from what you're saying, sounds like because it, I mean, it just makes, it makes the work more successful. It makes everyone better off at the end of the day with all of this, that doing any of these things in isolation is less impactful than really taking the more holistic approach that it sounds like you've, you've been thinking really hard about. As my mother used to say, the devil knows more because it's all than because it's the devil. So I think you learn through through ages, no? And again, I'm not that old, but it's like you, you really understand 
when you fail or when when there are challenges is when you learn the most and i think that working multidisciplinary multidisciplinary is very hard it's harder than not because when you work with biologists or ecologists we we, we all there is not that much disagreement about concepts however when you work with the humanities even the con the concept of resilience could be completely different for one and the other one so it is when you work with the humanities and with completely different disciplines you learn to listen and i think that's that's a key thing in multidisciplinary work uh, listening to what the other has and and also that I believe no one has a complete truth. So the more you listen, the better you can come to a common agreement. Couldn't agree more. I have two more questions for you, Carmen. The first one is we're looking forward. We recently had this big UN agreement around biodiversity. We're trying to hit these global targets by 2030 to conserve a large part of the world and really trying to reverse trends around carbon emissions and biodiversity loss. And it feels like we're in this race and the clock is ticking away. And so um, for you, looking ahead the next 10, 20 years, what do you think are some of just the big things that need to happen, the big changes that need to be made around sustainability and resiliency to make sure that we can start to actually meet some of these targets? Oh, uh, that, <laughs> that is a, a hard question. I mean, I know COP15 is a relevant COP. But I think COP26 and climate change was also a very relevant uh, COP. Again, not to sound old, but when we started working in this, like when I started my PhD, it's not that long ago, you have three sectors working completely in, a, in isolation. So biodiversity work in conservation, mostly. Uh, climate change was very focused on mitigation and disasters risk management was very focused on emergency attendance. Although we all care about uh, the planet, everyone was working in silos. You would go to a conference of disaster risk management and people wouldn't speak about climate change. It's like, how, how, how is this possible? This is 2007 and there is not one uh, speaker speaking about climate change in a disasters conference. Then you would go to the biodiversity cops and again, nobody was speaking about climate change. And in, cl in the climate change world, everyone was really focused on mitigation. So it's not that long ago that we were all working separately. And now we have more and more people. I mean, you guys, for you, it's logical. Like, it's obviously we have to work together, but it, it, it was not like that 15 years ago. So I think, again, we need to be patient and we need to build on what is already there. You mentioned before that there is a lot of biodiversity work. There is a lot of biodiversity work and failures. And it's the same with every single development discipline. We need to learn from the failures. We, we don't publish the failures because we, I, I don't know, I mean, I guess you always want to public, 
public success, but we need to learn about the failures. So your generation can build up on success and failure so we don't do the same again. But I, I think that bit of learning on the failures, publish, uh, systematically saying, look, we failed in this, we failed in this, it's useful. But also on the positive side, the fact that we have so many people now really doing the synergies between the topics. It's also another topic is land planning. Land planning before was for production, extraction. No, it was, this is the zoning. This is where you can mine. This is where you can do agriculture. This is where you do conservation. But now you have the four topics, land planning, disaster risk, reduction, climate change, and biodiversity, you have people thinking about the four things and obviously management and natural resources. So I think these 30 years might be in the process where you more or less try and learn and you do different things. And hopefully the following 10 years, it's more okay, we, we've tried this. Now we, we have an idea of what works and, and what doesn't, and, and hopefully we learn, we are more humble and we learn. The, the other thing is I, I hope that during these coming years, we listen more to the scientists from developing countries. They seem to be absent in many of the discussions. So we have the scientists from developed countries and we have the communities in Africa, in Latin America, but what happens with the scientists from those countries? They, they, they have the same brains than us and they are there and they struggle even much more than us to get funding. So I think that if, if we could include more the local scientists, we would advance a lot in many of the topics. That was such a detailed and, and thoughtful answer. And I just really appreciate a lot of the the thoughtfulness behind that. I'm going to be thinking about a lot of that for a while, to be honest. Um, but to close out, we were looking forward, um, and now I just kind of want to switch and, and look back a bit and end on a bit of a nostalgic note, because as I mentioned at the beginning, you were a 2005 Gates Scholar. And so I'm curious, looking back on your time in Cambridge, um, what are some of the, the things you miss about your time in Cambridge and, and the years that you spent running around this place filled with cows and fields and rivers? Well, it's, it's, that is a really hard because as I think I never really left Cambridge and, uh, I have really good friends from university, but as well, because I work for UNFW CMC. Um, I also have really good friends from the conservation world there. So I would say what I miss the most is my friends or the friends that you had that I did there people in Cambridge that I met are really wonderful. Now, in 2023, I miss my godchildren. But uh, back then, like, it's those godchildren are the result of my friendships in Cambridge. Now, places and situations, I think uh, St. Edmund's Chapel. Uh, St. Edmund's Chapel is a very small chapel, and the congregation at 10.30 on a Sunday it was a place where for many, many years I found peace. And the people there were kind, nice. It was like being surrounded by your parents and your uncles. So I haven't been able to find 
a similar place anywhere. No? So it's, it has a really special place in my heart. The other one is riding my bike in the starry night in Cambridge. And, and this might be, this might sound cliche, but coming from Colombia and feeling safe to ride a bike at midnight, it, it's, it was very important for me. No, it, it is, and, it, and it, Cambridge is just a great place. And then obviously June in Cambridge is beautiful, the gardens, the flowers. And the other thing that I think I would love to live again would be all the extracurricular activities. Like I did a, a course on entrepreneurship for PhDs. Maybe that's what put the plan, the seed the plan for the Grupo La Era. The peer support program where you learn to listen. All those programs that the university place gives to students, and it's not just academic, but it, they give you tools to to go through life. I, I, I think that was, I enjoy very much. I mean, I have a list, but, uh, but I think those three are really important for me. Well, I'd say, Carmen, this conversation um, has been its own really delightful gift, and it has been an absolute joy to speak with you. Um, Carmen Lacambra is the co-founder of the consultancy Grupo La Era. She is also a 2005 Gates Scholar who did a PhD in geography. Carmen, thank you so much for talking with us. 